only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. Coming up on this week's show, near-perfect Atari Jaguar emulation arrives. How to play Elite in Teletext. And we chat retro repairs with Mark Fixister. And the Retro Hour podcast is brought to you every single Friday with our amazing friends at Bitmap Books. Now, if you're thinking about Christmas presents for yourself, why don't you treat yourself to this? Bitmap Books presents I'm Too Young to Die, the ultimate guide to first-person shooters. Now, this covers the early experimental years of the genre that went on to dominate video games, celebrating more than 180 classic FPS games. You can treat yourself to that and check out the rest of their retro gaming books. All the details are at bitmapbooks.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 356, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the podcast every single Friday takes you on a nostalgic trip back to the golden age of video games. We bring you up to speed on all the big happenings in the world of retro from over the last seven days. And of course, a very special guest on the show in the second half of the podcast. And uh, I can't believe that actually this is our final normal, or as normal as this podcast ever gets, show of 2022 as uh, next week, we kind of go into our, uh, our Christmas specials for the last couple of weeks of the year, which is just nuts. That's come around so quickly. I, I can't believe how quick this year has gone. Like, it feels like it was only five minutes ago and we were doing episode 300, which was like yeah. over a year <laughs> it was, ago. It was now. probably because the lockdown years <laughs> yeah. it went so slowly that uh, yeah. once we were released, <laughs> all of the kind of activities increased and, you know, events happened and people yeah. went out. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on there, Ravi. You know, this year alone, I think I've been to about three or four events. I think you guys have been as well. Ravi, you've put on your own events, um, which has been really cool. So, like, I think you're right there, Ravi. It's really cool. Uh, and it's, it's you know, we're, we're doing stuff, you know, every other weekend and stuff like that. So it's 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 gone really, really quick. But, yeah, got the uh, Christmas quiz coming up, haven't we, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> now, let's just put this into context. Now, we do um, an end-of-year special. Every year, it's tradition, the Retro Hour annual Christmas Super Quiz. And um, not that I'm keeping score. Have you ever won the quiz before, Abby? No, I've never won, but also, <laughs> have, have you ever participated, Dan? <laughs> this will be, well, I'm doing, this is my second time participating. I'm going to be a, a contestant this year. Now, it is a bit a bit of a tradition that Ravi generally loses a quiz i've got to be honest oh, but I was close last year close. <laughs> you have come close yeah i mean i'm not saying you do awful you have come very close a few times and then things kind of change around but this year it's paul drury from retro gamer magazine and ollie who've been contestants on the show before they've also hosted it one year and uh, they asked us you know look we've got a bunch of questions we want to quiz you guys can we be the host so we said yeah okay you're gonna do that me and joe are gonna be on a team together and ravi's like you know leave it to me 
I'm going to get someone in to um, basically trounce you guys. And he won't tell us who it is. No, I've, I've got a secret weapon. Um, Anne Robinson from uh, DL. <laughs> she's going to kick your ass. But um, <laughs> Paul, Paul's like really knowledgeable because he's from Retro mm, yeah. Gamer. And Ollie as well used to do a quiz in the city. So, so Ollie's got huge knowledge as well. So I think it's good that it's actually going to be kind of the Retro Hour team. And uh, being three of us, you know, I have to bring in uh, this special guest, um, either Anne Robinson or Noel Edmonds or the Beast <laughs> or, you know, <laughs> some quiz master's going to come out and, uh, yeah, hopefully help me, help me get the crown this year. I will admit Good. it is going to be strange because usually me and Ravi kind of like we've teamed up about three or four times now over like the last six times we've done it. And uh, I do enjoy it. We do usually come last, but. It is a laugh. Like we're we're usually like the you clowns who come. You left me for the glory, Joe. <laughs> I've left it. you for the glory with Dan. <laughs> I, I wouldn't get your hopes up about me too much. I think I uh, basically rode your coattails all the way last time, Joe. If I remember, <laughs> but um, yeah, but it is. It's that's the thing, isn't it? It's just a giggle, bit of an end of year celebration, and uh, you know, it's just just a good laugh at the end of the year. And obviously, we get a lot of people who take part as well, don't we? Who play along at home. Well, so. you know, I thought like, oh, we could do a quiz like every month or something. But you guys take it so seriously, like oh yeah, <laughs> the tension in there and stuff. I wouldn't oh. be able to cope, mate. I I think I won it the year. I think I won it one year, and that was the year with Dan. And you know, Paul did, did he gave me a trophy of a Game Boy mug, and it sits proudly in my games room on the shelf. Like <laughs> you know, that is my trophy of the one year I won. Step aside, you know, like my daughter's birth certificate and photos of her. <laughs> I bet you wear that cried. mug and a chain round your neck, do you? Yeah. <laughs> I just cried and scoffed loads of chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that is coming up in two weeks' time. That will be our last episode of 2022. Next year, a uh, bit of a retrospective looking back on the uh, the best bits of retro and our favourite guests who've appeared on the podcast, our, our best of the year that's coming up next week. So this is our last normal show, and uh, we have got a brilliant guest to uh, end 2022. We're going to be talking to uh, Mark from Mark Fix's stuff. Now, actually, Mark was a, a guest on the quiz last year, wasn't he? Yeah, he kicked kick man and Ravi's ass. <laughs> with, with Neil from RMC. Yeah. Um, this was a really, really fun interview. It was really laid back, and um, it felt a little bit like talking to an old friend, you know, like catching up with an old yeah. friend, like kind of like round the pub with a pint. Um, and it was really cool just to find a little bit more out, out about Mark and, you know, kind of talk about what he does on his show. Obviously, he fixes stuff. Um, and kind of how he got into that and, you know, what recommendations he'd have for people who want to get into that. And obviously he had a bit of a tragedy last year. He had a, he had a big house fire and, uh, but he kind of like talks about the lighter side of it and, you know, how he's trying yeah. to like fix some of these things and stuff. And it was really quite fascinating. Yeah, I mean, if you watch his uh, YouTube channel, um, and, and I always love repair channels. Mm. I mean, there are a few of them who, you know, there's a few more hopefully we're going to get on the show next year as well. But I think it's always really good advice, isn't it? Because we've all got old machines that are lying around, and these machines are not getting any younger. And one by one, I mean, stuff like capacitors and batteries, all that kind of thing fails. And if, like me and you, Joe, I mean, you know, we, we haven't got the best electronics knowledge. I say Ravi's probably a bit more knowledgeable there, but, you know, stuff like holding a soldering iron and the temperatures to set it to. What kind of kit, you know, if you want to do yeah. your own, because, I, I mean, I've got about 80 machines and sending them all off to get repaired and recapped and all that, you know, can be quite pricey. But also, we kind of like... Talk to Mark about, I, we, or we talked to Mark about kind of the steps to learn this stuff yourself, mm. which is really valuable. But also, yeah. I wouldn't attempt half of the stuff that you see on YouTube, yeah. people repairing. <laughs> it's good to see that, to be like, wow, they're really going yeah. in for it, you know. And also, I mean, there's just a 
really good nostalgic chat about the 80s and 90s and old mm. machines and stuff as well. So it's a really nice one to end the year on. Mark from Mark Fixes Stuff, he'll be coming up on the show in around half an hour from now. And uh, just before we get into the news stories this week, uh, just a quick reminder... If, uh, if like lots of people who've um, contacted us over the last couple of days, you haven't yet backed the Retro Hour book on Kickstarter, um, you've got around, well, if you, if you listen to the show, the minute this drops, you've got about 47 hours left yeah. to get yourself in there. <laughs> yeah, so our Kickstarter does end on Saturday night, which is Saturday the 10th of 10th December. Of That's December. tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow, if you're listening to the day this came out, so... If you want to get involved and you do want to back the book and you want to have it in your hands in the next couple of months, um, you've got about a day, day and a half to get your hands on that. And we really, really appreciate it. It's, you know, it's done really well so far, but that last push would be absolutely amazing. So if you do want to get involved, go check it out. Yeah, we did an answer Kickstarter um, stretch goal as well last week, so to get some extra interviews in there. It's also hard kind of saying whether we're going to hit that or not, because we're recording this on Monday, so it's a few days out. But, you know, um, it's looking like we might just be on trend to scrape it by the skin of our teeth. So if you want to help us get over that stretch goal, um, and also check out everyone that's in the book, and uh, your final chance to get in there, if you'd like to get a copy of this um, this book that's going to look gorgeous, in your hand, in a few months' time, um, all the details to back it and be one of our last backers uh, on the website right now at the Retro Hour. Com. Now, lots of new stories to get into, including um, playing Elite on Teletext. Now, that's very cool. Before we do that, though, what about this? Atari Jaguar emulation. Now, obviously, I'm kind of our resident Atari Jaguar fan. Whenever there's a Jaguar story and you guys you guys kind of look to me, um, I'm looking over now at my, um, my lovely setup of my Atari Jaguar CD and my Pro Controllers and my flash cart that's uh, sitting proudly on my shelf. But I appreciate that not everyone can get an Atari Jaguar in their collection because these things ain't cheap these days. But until now, there's not really been a good way to emulate them. And now, I don't know if you guys have ever tried Atari Jaguar emulation. It kind of reminds me a bit of um, N64 emulation in terms of it's quite weird hardware, but also the fact that the Jaguar wasn't a roaring success means it probably hasn't had the resources poured into it of uh, something like, you know, the N64. So it's always been a bit janky, but it looks like someone has finally solved that problem. And now we've got a decent way of playing Jaguar games on your PC. It seems um, interesting because, like, as you said, Jag hardware is pretty odd. So um, it's it's like two CPUs, isn't it, that kind mm. of makes a 64-bit. But, you know, um, I can imagine that just the, the odd, oddity of the system, like, you know, Saturn as well, which was quite... Took yeah. quite a while to kind of get the emulator sorted out, but it looks like uh, this big P is is pretty interesting. It's got a lot of really interesting features. What 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 do you think about it, Joe? Yeah, so this comes from um, Rich Whitehouse, um, who's a user on Twitter at Dick Whitehouse. Um, so big P, big P E M U, it's called. Uh, yeah, I don't know how to pronounce this. Whether it's big P M U or big P M U. <laughs> yeah, I'm not too sure either. Big P, we'll go with for now. So he's saying it's the first Atari Jaguar emulator to feature like complete compatibility with the entire retail cartridge library of the Atari Jaguar and pretty much saying, you know, there's there's little to no slowdown in there. It's all kind of like running as well as it can be, like doing, you know, those that dual processor, like you say, Ravi, you know, emulating both of them. Um, and pretty the Tom mu- and Jerry chips. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> and pretty much it, it, it's meant to be near perfect emulation of it, which, you know, which we've had on like, you know, the Super Nintendo and the Mega Drive and stuff like that for the last couple of decades. But Jaguar and as you say, Ravi, Sega Saturn and N64 to an extent, been really, really difficult to kind of get that going. He's posted a three hour video 
of it, which obviously I've skipped through quite a bit and stuff like that. I've not watched the whole thing, but it looks really, really smooth or as smooth as, you know, Jaguar is meant to be. Um, and then also he aims to support Jaguar CD and Jaguar VR games through it as well. Eventually. Now that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, Jaguar VR, because I mean, there was only one game that ever supported that and that was Missile Command 3D um, that had that baked in, but obviously the Atari Jaguar headset mm. was never released onto the market. And we know there are a few prototypes out there. So I'm wondering, you know, I mean, obviously that is the only game, but it would be cool to maybe have an option to play that on something like a, a linked Oculus to your yeah, PC. That, that'd that's be that's probably going to happen because, yeah. like, looking at the stuff that he's actually done for this, he's he's got um, plugins that are enabled for it as well and uh, stuff like shaders. So you can already apply smooth filtering on top of it, um, you know, which means that you're going to be able to do, like, add-ons and stuff and uh, increase it like you can do with the PS2 emulators. Um, it's got native HDR support as well. Um, so I can imagine you're going to be able to upscale and like increase a lot of these Jag games to look massively like they they don't look originally. And uh, yeah, with that VR support, um, that seems really interesting and uh, a good mm. way of getting Jag VR onto the headset. Yeah, and I mean, there is, um, like Joe mentioned, there's a YouTuber called um, Jeff Gertzman who's done like a really in-depth three-hour video kind of... So, I mean, there's only about 50 officially licensed Atari Jaguar games anyway. And this guy on YouTube, he kind of goes through pretty much all the big ones are in here. You know, you've got Tempest 2000, you've got Alien vs. Predator, um, Atari Karts, um, Doom's in here as well. And I've got to say, just kind of skimming through the video and, you know, obviously having the original hardware to kind of know what they're meant to run like. And I've got to say, this is um, very, very close. I mean, I've seen the odd drop frame occasionally, but it looks a lot better than anything I've seen before. I think um, one thing that you guys have missed is the Jaglink support, which is really interesting because um, you could do death matches and stuff and you'll be able to do multiplayer support, I guess. Oh, cool. You might have an interface to be able to do that over the internet which yeah, would uh, kind of bring online gaming to the Jag, which yeah. is pretty mad. Yeah, I, I can see that here. It says it's aiming to support it. So that would be pretty insane if we could do that. Bit of a Kasumi Ninja, you know, over the internet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think, again, I mean, there's not, I mean, from memory, I think there's Battlesphere oh, and okay. Doom might be the only two yeah. that actually supported the Jag link. So it was a time when I actually had two Atari Jaguars mm. um, and I saw... Randomly, at the time I had both of them, I saw Jaglink in a game shop in Lincoln, Gotham Games. So I nearly bought it then, but then, yeah, I remember reading that because obviously you needed two copies of the games as well. And I thought, yeah, it's not going to happen. End up selling one of my Jaguars anyway. Um, so, yeah, I mean, but the fact is, I mean, it, there's not a massive library on the system anyway. Uh, but the fact that you can actually experience this, because, you know, for a lot of gamers, this just kind of locked out, isn't it? Because it's so expensive to get hold of the hardware now. And really... You've got to be really interested in the Jaguar to splash out like, you know, 600 quid on a Jaguar and the CD add-on, which most people probably wouldn't bother doing. It might, might be more than that these days, but I mean, yeah. I've, I've wanted a Jaguar for a long time. And like you say, I just can't pull the trigger on the cost of it. So, you know, if I wanted to really, really wanted to play a game like this would obviously be perfect for me now, like to go and emulate it and it actually be near perfect. Like you say, it's only, we're only use, losing a few frames yeah, they've, nah. they've never kind of appealed to me, but playing the library would, like exploring a new library, and then maybe it would appeal to me if I yeah. like find something in that library that's good. 
Yeah, I will say, guys, don't get your hopes up too much. <laughs> Mate, I'm a CD32 user. <laughs> <laughs> no, <right>. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Robbie's used to this part. kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> there definitely are a few little hidden gems in there, though. You know, probably a handful of games that um, I think would appeal to uh, more than just Jaguar fans. So that is available now. If you want to download it, I'll put a link to the uh, download the emulator um, in our show notes and everything else we talk about. You'll find it all at theretrohour.com. That seems recently we're getting a load of innovation on Elite. I mean, we're talking um, a couple of weeks ago about this new level editor that was released. It can make your own universes in the BBC Micro version of Elite. But now it turns out someone has kind of took this to uh, an even further level and now made a teletext version. Oh, it's it's not a te- strictly a teletext version. It's in the teletext mode. Mode, yeah. yeah. It's in the graphics, so it's it's outputting the uh, visual display in a teletext style. Because um, teletext was very limited with games, um, bamboozled was obviously the big one on there. But also, uh, did you guys know that there was a Worms uh, version of, of on teletext? Which, I did um, not know that. It was nice. it was hidden and it was found on a VHS on an oh, unlisted nice. <laughs> unlisted page uh, that the public weren't meant to see. How did that play then? Have you seen it? Uh, yeah, there's a few screenshots of it out there and it's it's like Worms Teletext Edition and I guess you might have used a controller or something, but it was never released. Um, whereas this is is playing through the Beeb but displaying those kind of Teletext graphics. And uh, I think it's really nice uh, compared to the rendered, well, well, the vector graphics on there. I kind of like mm. the... Uh, the look on it and and the fact that you've got like animation and stuff. Yeah, I mean this is a guy called Mark Moxon, um, who's been doing a few of these teletext games by the looks of it. Yeah, so what he's done really it's the original BBC Micro version, but obviously the BBC Micro had a, a special mode called Mode, mode Seven. Yeah, that was the uh, the teletext mode, which um, you know I think the BBC did use that you know for the, the teletext broadcast at least for a while. But obviously, as kind of teletext faded away. Obviously, the internet kind of killed it off and everything. Teletext has become a bit of a lost art, but, I mean, there are still services running and everything. When I first saw this headline, I initially thought, I mean, is this going to be Teletext that you can play with a remote control on your TV? But it's not that. This is a a version for the BBC Micro that rather than using the vector mode, like you said, it uses mode 7, which is the Teletext mode, which I think is like ASCII graphics. But it does mean that, because obviously if you play the original elite version on the BBC Micro, um, a lot of kind of the vector graphics are very monochrome looking. So yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's special home kind of graphics, but um, you know, Joe, like Joe couldn't even take off on the, on the version no. of, of elite. <laughs> so we should give him the teletext version to send him into even more of a spin. <laughs> I might get on better with this one. Yeah. I, on when I tried to play elite for our uh, after hour show, and I yeah I couldn't I couldn't even start the game, <laughs> like, so we'll see how I get on the Salutech one next time. Well, I mean it is quite handy that you can play this in your web browser as well. Mm. Yeah, so, um, there's there's, a, there's an online version you can just play. I, I like the aesthetic with it. I think like you know yeah. listing the units and the products and stuff that looks really nice. And if you've been used to that kind of you know gaming and uh, just just have a bit of nostalgia about it, it's it's quite a cool new way to play it. It is funny though, yeah, because there is. Um, I'll post the the tweet that he put out where it shows you about a minute of gameplay, and uh, yeah, like the market screen and everything. It's been obviously rendered in the the, the mode seven teletext font. Just looking at it though, just makes you think of like football scores or something, doesn't it? Instantly, yeah, yeah. Looking at that or TV listings that you used to see on telly back in the day, or your dad going through 
Teletex holidays back in the 90s. Um, so, yeah, instantly that aesthetic reminds me of that. But, yeah, it's very cool to see it rendered in kind of pixel style and uh, a different way to play Elite on the BBC Micro. So, uh, if you want to get hold of that, that is available for download now. Now, we're going to talk about um, an amazing new Mega Drive game from a legend that's coming up and also something that might be quite topical for you, Ravi, because I know you've got your hands on a, uh, a Windows XP box. Yes. this week that you've been playing around with. So we'll tell you more about those stories in just a minute. Before that, let's just pause for a second to give a big thank you to uh, one of our sponsors this week, and it is a long-term sponsor of the Retro Hour, our friends at ExpressVPN. Obviously, it is Christmas, the season of giving, but maybe you don't want to give away everything to you know companies like your internet service provider. Because, you know, not, not only talking about the bills that you pay every month, but, you know, whenever you go online, on the internet, on, like, Virgin Media or Sky or AT&T or Verizon, if you're not using ExpressVPN, that means you're pretty much giving away everything that you do online to your ISP. And then, you know, they can legally sell that to third-party advertisers for big profits as well. And that includes, because a lot of people think, if I use incognito mode, I'm completely hidden. And that's not the case at all, is it? No, like, you know, when you're online shopping, sometimes you start seeing suggestions popping up and all of that. Well, they're actually kind of building a profile on you and uh, on on your shopping habits. Um, well, ExpressVPN basically encrypts and reroutes 100% of its network data and uh, it goes through their secure servers. So your provider can't actually see a thing. And it's well easy to use. Like on my laptop, I've got it. It fires up straight away. You can have it on your phone and it's, uh, you know, the tap of one button to connect. Yeah, so um, unlike your ISP, ExpressVPN is completely committed to your privacy and actually their privacy policy has been audited by third parties. So you can be rest assured that your data is not being logged by anyone. So um, if you think you've given enough to your ISP this year, it's time to start taking back your privacy today with the VPN that's rated number one by TechRadar and Mashable. And of course, We've got you a great discount as well. If you head to our link, expressvpn.com slash retro, you will get three months of ExpressVPN for free on a one-year plan. That is expressvpn.com slash retro. And a big thank you to our friends at ExpressVPN for their continued support. So Mark from Mark Fixes Stuff is our special guest. He'll be coming up in the next few minutes. And this is always very exciting to see now. I've got to admit, I always love it when we get new games for old systems. Just seeing a headline that a new Mega Drive game is coming out is enough to uh, kind of get my, my retro senses tingling a little bit. But when you hear that actually this has been worked on by someone as famous as Yuzo Koshiro, that kind of takes it to the next level. It is the next level. So, yeah, um, you, that, that's the story, seeing a bit. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, um, this is awesome. So Yuzo Koshiro, for those who don't know, Famously did the Streets of Rage 1, 2, 3 and 4 soundtracks, um, co-wrote the soundtracks. And he was also, I mean, he's gone on to do loads of other games. He, he worked on quite a few SNES titles. Um, I only recently found out that he's behind quite a lot of the Super Smash Bros um, titles mm. as well, you know, composers on them. Um, but he's not actually developed a game. So as in, you know, had a hand in developing the game and designing the game um, since Story of Four or Beyond Oasis, as it was known in America because he worked for Ancient um, in the mm. 90s, and that was the last game he was actually a developer slash designer for. Whereas this game, um, not only is he doing the soundtrack, he's also helping with developing it as well. So, you know, almost 30 years since he's been a designer slash developer, which is really cool. So the reason I haven't mentioned the name of the game is because of he has stated that the game doesn't have a title yet. 
So he's posted a few screenshots <laughs> I, of it. I'm glad that, because I've, I've been going through yeah. Twitter and this article up and down going, what the, where the hell is Yeah, this? yeah, no, I, I had to read the article about two or three times. Um, so it's not got a name yet, um, but it's an old it's an old school shoot 'em up is how he describes it. Um, kind of like a little bit like um, Darius and, um, you know, R-Type. Like R-Type to me. Yeah, it looks yeah. like R-Type. And um, what I love in the screenshots is he's playing it. It looks like he's playing on the Sega. You know, he's playing it with a Sega controller at least, but he's playing it on a CRT, which I love. Yeah. Um, which looks absolutely awesome. Um, it's got like a kind of like a, like an alien, like you say, R-Type kind of look to it. And it looks like, you know, you kind of cycle through all your different weapons, like, you know, bombs and missiles and like, you know, your normal kind of machine gun and stuff like that. No footage as it stands, um, just screenshots. Hopefully we'll see it, you know, early 2023. Um, but he says it's going to be completely playable on the Mega Drive and it is going to be using the Mega Drive sound chip as well, you know, for the compositions. Oh, nice. for it, it looks um, pretty gorgeous from the screenshots. Mm. Um, I'm liking this purple kind of bluey palette yeah. that they've got going on there yeah I, I really like the look of that and it's going to be using like i say that native ym2612 sound chip um which you know which he's really familiar with um so i can't wait to hear the soundtrack can't yeah, wait to it looks game. like it's a shoot em up but also it's in a kind of alien world or yeah. some kind of uh it's it's got a very alien kind of vibe to it yeah 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 no that's uh i think that's where they're going with it i mean it could just be that level you know that they're showing off that's got that alien vibe but you know, I'm sure we'll find out, but and I can't I, wait. I, I see one of them is a ship heading towards a wall. I'm thinking, are these walls destructible? Yeah, that's a good point. Oh, that'd be nice. That'd be yeah. nice. That, is a, that is a good point. You know, and you know, these new Mega Drive games, they always completely push the hardware, you know, to the limit. Sometimes they have a few onboard chips and stuff like that, you know, to do a, a few fancier extra things that the Mega Drive couldn't do. So we might see some stuff like that. Um, but or I'm, some Earthworm uh, Jim technology shoved in there. <laughs> yeah, maybe. But fingers crossed we get um, a nice physical release of it. Um, you know, actually running on the hardware would be really, really cool to see. But yeah, at the moment, just a few screenshots to kind of announce that he's making this game, you know, and that he's happy to be designing a game, you know, for the first time in, like I say, 28, 29 years. Yeah, and it's incredible that he's decided to do that on the Mega Drive as mm. well. You know, getting these legends coming back. Yeah. For the hardware that they are most famous for, and I mean, you know, and if you think anyone knows the Mega Drive hardware, it'll be him. Yeah, and I don't, I don't know about you guys as well, but there's also something about shoot 'em up games. I mean, this looks like a, like you mentioned, a side-scrolling shooter yeah. in the vein of our type. And even though I've never been amazingly good at shoot 'em up games, I've always enjoyed them, and I think there's definitely something about having a proper pumping like Mega Drive style soundtrack on there, an arcade soundtrack that really gets your adrenaline going, doesn't it? It's a big part of that experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, they've always it's always got like I always associate the Mega Drive with that kind of gritty but like gritty metal sound, but also the techno sound, which obviously he's kind of famous for. Um mm. but then, you know, some of his other works have been very orchestral. Um but I think the look of this game will be like you say, it'll have that kind of techno metal feel to it, I think, which you know the Mega Drive emulates so well. I can hear it in my head already. Yeah, same. I can as well. <laughs> so, uh, I always associate with that twanging noise. I like... So bring it on. Hopefully we'll uh, get to see that next year. Obviously, we'll keep an eye on that story. Um, just a few screenshots at the moment, but everything we know will be in the show notes and uh, we'll let you know more as we hear it. Now, the mini console craze continues. I've been seeing... Uh, I don't know if you've got your hands on one actually yet, Joe. I've been seeing a lot of people on my social media timelines talking about the Mega Drive Mini 2. No, I haven't. Um, I haven't pulled the trigger on one hundred and fifty quid on Amazon. 
a little bit expensive, but they do look really cool. And, you know, they've got Sega CD built in them as well, Sega CD games as well. But, you know, not as obscure as this one that's uh, been put up for pre-order this week, is it, Dan? Yeah, now we did talk about this um, a bit earlier on in the year, that there was a um, a manufacturer called um, Zuiki who makes system on the chips, and they announced a uh, X68K Mini. Now, obviously, the um, 68K, that was Sharp's Japanese home computer from the uh, from the 80s, and I've actually seen these in person mm. at a couple of shows. I was at Retcon just outside of London last year, and uh, there's a few people demoing them there, and these machines, I mean, the look of them, that kind of, Kind of a twin tower, isn't it? Yeah. Um, always looks really impressive. Gorgeous looking machines as well. But obviously weren't very popular over here. So it's also been something I found quite interesting. And they announced this um, this miniature version of it a bit earlier on in the year. And there have been a few kind of early access versions of this. Um, they called the Hackers Edition. And obviously a few people have got those in their hands. And they've been giving this company Zuiki some feedback that they're taking on board and that they're going to be launching pretty much it. You know, they're taking pre-orders now to launch this onto mass market. Yeah, so they, they're aiming to get these into people's hands on March 31st, 2023, um, which is only, God, sounds really far away, but it's only like three, four months away now. Um, mm. But it looks pretty cool. Um, comes with, you know, fully functioning keyboard and mouse, you know, attached, you know, that you can plug into the mini console, um, which I always think is funny because you've got a full-size keyboard and then the mini console, you know, <laughs> yeah. is like a third of the size of the keyboard. Um, when, when the mouse is dwarfing the computer, yeah. it come a long way. Um, but yeah, it looks like they've listened, um, you know, to kind of like the feedback on there. And obviously, you know, it's got emulation on there and it's going to come with some preloaded games. Um, but un- interestingly, it's going to come with an SD card slot on there as well. So you can load your own, your own games onto there, uh, which, you know, is always nice when they don't lock you know, these consoles, quite often these companies, they'll lock the mini console and it's kind of, it is what it is. But this looks like it, you know, it's designed to be what it is. It's it's a computer. It's a, a miniature computer because that's what it was. It was a computer in the 80s. So people can play around with it and, you know, play around with the emulation on there as well, which is pretty cool. This seems um, a lot better than the minis that I've seen before, which this has got a lot of thought about it. So um, uh, the, the price that I'm looking at, at the moment is uh, I'm converting the yen to pounds. It's two ninety seven pounds. Okay. Yeah. About 300 quid. Yeah. With the, with the keyboard and mm. the mouse and all the kind of add-ons. Um, I think this is really smart. Like the keyboard has a switch on it so you can switch it to, to be used on windows as well. Oh, cool. Underneath it. Um, it's also got this, uh, UART, UART, which is a, a receiver transmitter on the back, which is kind of like a serial communicator. So I guess you're going to be able to like flash it or add in extra stuff and do some kind of hacks there. And it's, it, it comes with the OS as well. And to me, this appeals a lot more than a, a, a console, just a straight up console. Cause this has the computer aspect of it. You know, and it has a well, nice designed mouse. It looks sexy. It's a system that I've got no chance of owning ever. Um, (laughs) But, you know, if I bought this little one, I could have an experience. And to be honest, with a working keyboard and separate mouse, it appeals to me even more than the Amiga Mini. Um, It looks like it's it's quality as well. And it's done by one of the um, original companies. So I... Yeah, I, I'd be really interested in this. I think I think this looks like an awesome project. And it looks like a lot of thought's gone into it as well. Yeah. Like you mentioned, I mean, the mouse and keyboard, I mean, they all they have the original kind of layout and um, 
you know, the, the aesthetic of the original two. Even if you've seen the um, the Sharp 68K model I was playing with at Retcon, it's got these kind of vertical floppy disk drives, and they're kind of mechanical. Yeah. So um, you, pre- you press an eject button and the, the disk kind of pops out, which I'd never seen before. Um, but this, I mean, you, you look at this, the actual SD card slots by the looks of it are in the same orientation. So the, kind of the keyboard like, as well looks like it has that um, X68K lights on it as well, which, um, you know, it had LEDs, LEDs the within the keys, uh, yeah. which is always cool. Because I, I remember my friend, um, uh, Gary, he, he's he got a, a X68K and um, you can basically start it up and some of the lights will synchronize with the game on the keyboard. So whilst you're playing, the kind of lights are all going off and stuff. And they've added that detail in there, which is really nice. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at this and thinking I'd really like to get my hands on one of these. Because again, I mean, I've always been interested in computers and consoles that I didn't experience back in the day. Yeah, totally. And obviously I've kind of got all the all the main ones now. So I'm kind of into that territory And, now, and this was like the bad boy. This was the elite bad yeah. boy of, of that kind of range. And it's that nice mix of computer and console, you know, like the MSX and that kind of area that appeals to me a lot more than getting like a PlayStation or Mega Drive Mini. You know what I'm wanting now? I'm, I'm thinking it would be nice to have a, a B-Box Mini or, <laughs> yeah. a, or a Next Cube Mini. One built for Danwood. <laughs> <laughs> Next yeah, Cube would be good. Yeah. Build your own uh, first ever web server on it. That'd be cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so if you've always wanted to get hold of a, uh, a, six, a Sharp 68K, obviously they're very expensive, but um, it looks like these are little minis for 300 quid. I think that's good value for everything that you get with it and the design of it too. Um, I'm not sure how much it's going to be to import them in the UK. I can't imagine that's going to get a release worldwide. I've got a feeling that will only be limited to the Japanese market. You know, yeah. I can't imagine that it would have much success over here, but, you know, we'll have to send Joe on holiday again, won't we, to bring some bags? <laughs> I'll bring so, us yeah. a few back, boys. Yeah. Yeah. If they're minis, they'll fit in your bags. So. Yeah, yeah, I'll come back with like yeah, eight exactly. of them or something. Yeah. I, I brought them with me. They're already there. <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, very cool. Should be out in a few months' time. I'll link that story up in our show notes as well. Now, I did mention, Ravi, you've been uh, playing around with... Um, your Windows XP box that you got from uh, our mate Taz, and as a listener to the podcast, yeah, um, um, he's got the other nice machine. It's 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 really nice, but kind of makes me think like I've forgotten about how all this stuff needs updating, but also how this stuff works. So I had a a DVD drive in there, and I was putting in CD ROMs. I was going, why isn't it reading them? And I totally forgot that like back in the days, you'd have a DVD drive and a separate CD ROM drive as well. They weren't integrated <laughs> so i was like why is it not reading oh, these wow. oh it's because they're cd format and this is just just dvd and then loading up windows as well windows xp is great but um you know it does take you back to like oh my god nothing updates nothing works none of the ssl certificates work browsing on internet explorer 8 is a uh, is hell so yeah which it always was to be fair yeah which it always was but um yeah it's pretty good going back first thing i did was install winamp it's <laughs> a great one yeah nice and you found a web browser well my pal you've been playing around with that which is a i think it's still in development isn't it a web browser that works on Xbox. yeah i think it was based on the firefox code and uh that runs and you download that and every website works i couldn't i.e i couldn't even get google.com to work it was just like no <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I mean, there's obviously been a lot of changes in the 20 years since Windows XP came out. And I think XP's not been... When was that discontinued, I think, officially around 2014? I'm, going I'm to sure the NHS was, uh... are still using it, but yeah, 2014. Well, actually, I mean, I, I think there are still some commercial 
like enterprise uses for it where i'm not sure whether they're still doing it there's got to be a lot of xp machines in the world still you know. Well, it's the thing. I know Microsoft did offer kind of extended service for companies that were willing to pay for it, which I've got a feeling they might still be doing for Windows 7. Well, that was the Microsoft famous um, NHS malware was when, uh, you know, they had to download this update and they hadn't. And then, uh, you know, because it was a, it was one that you chose and it wasn't forced onto the machines. And then they got a ransomware mm-hmm. on, yeah. on all of the uh, old XP machines. Although one thing you find now, if you um, like, you've probably found if you're installing a new install of Windows XP, it's not quite like it is today, where you know you put Windows 10 or Windows 11 on a machine, it connects to the servers, it downloads all your drivers automatically, it does all the updates. You haven't really got to do anything; it does it all for you. But it was a bit different back in the day, and obviously since Windows XP was discontinued uh, nearly a decade ago, um, the update servers are now offline. So getting hold of those updates is quite tricky. Until uh, this great little service has come along now. If you go to um, legacyupdate.net, this is someone who's basically made uh, an update server, a third-party one for Windows XP, and not only XP, but also Windows Vista and uh, Windows 2000 as well. So not only will it give you kind of the latest patches that Microsoft released as well, but also it does stuff like... um, it does Windows product activation. I guess automatically. That, that is pointing towards somebody else's server. Yeah, it is, yeah. Yeah, and then with product activation, they've also probably they've got the activation thing within their server and then Windows sees it and thinks, oh, this is an official official place. Like I downloaded um, Service Pack 4 before uh, the unofficial one, 3.1B, which is like, from 2016 so it's kind of a fan update and stuff but this one yeah this legacy seems like it's going to actually you know keep me updated with the latest stuff and uh, i won't have to rely solely on on fan updates i can actually download directly uh, from the desktop yeah well, this basically it makes the original windows update service work again so it's kind of a patch i guess like a registry patch to kind of redirect it and obviously i mean there are going to be people that will instantly be you know, like, oh, my God, security, you're letting somebody you don't know update your machine. But to be honest, if you're still using Windows XP or Windows 2000 yeah. or anything critical, <laughs> then you've only got yourself to blame, really. But um, it doesn't mean for the rest of us who just, you know, we've got a machine to play around with. It does give you a nice, simple way of making sure it's uh, as up-to-date as can be. Um, so uh, that is available now, and a new version of it just came out last week, actually. So, um, yes, yeah, so a few people were talking it's, about that in our Discord. It's interesting. Haven't you seen that there's also a MSM Messenger protocol now? Where, yeah. where you can communicate through MSM Messenger. So I might have to get that fired up and, uh, you know, start chatting to people on Messenger. That's going <laughs> to that's gonna be an effort to get them to install it. You know what, though? That, that's a good idea. Because, you know, we chat all, all during the week, don't we, on uh, Facebook Messenger, and that's kind of our service that we use to communicate I'm switching to MSM. That's it. We need to do that, lads. I, I want to. I want to be able to nudge. I was, Joe, I was literally about to say, I'm make a screen start, I'll be just nudging you guys. Come on, talk to me. <laughs> nudge, nudge, nudge. I'll, I'll send you vo- voice messages. You used to be able to drop them in. It was great. Oh, yeah. and those awful huge smileys that would. I'll just appear offline. <laughs> I do remember as well with with nudging on MSN. There was no kind of flood protection was there you could do it over and over again for like hours if yep. you wanted to <laughs> so uh yeah very cool to see that people are still supporting these old os's if you want to uh, get yours as up to date as possible and um, that's legacyupdate.net and of course i'll put that and all the rest of the stories in our show notes at the retrohour.com now special guest mark fixes stuff talking about 
restoring and maintaining your retro machines. It's coming up in just a moment. Before we do that, another quick mention just for an amazing sponsor of this podcast and one that we really, really believe in. That is our friends at BetterHelp who have sponsored this week's show. Now, BetterHelp are, I think, you know, one of the most important sponsors that we work with as well because, you know, we, we know that life can be difficult from time to time. And we talk about technology and gadgets and games and computers and often having, you know, manuals or uh, frequently asked questions that we can go into for software is something that we kind of take for granted. But the thing is, life doesn't come with a user manual, does it? No, unfortunately not. And it's definitely something I could do with sometimes, you know, sometimes when you're uh, not quite feeling yourself or something's feeling a little bit amiss, maybe in your brain, you know, usually if it was something with your body, you know, something's not functioning right or you've hurt yourself, you'd quite happily go to the doctors or go to the hospital about it. But often when it's something in our brain, sometimes we might turn to online and try and find out what's wrong with us. And like you say, some sort of user manual or something like that. And, you know, unfortunately, they're not there. Um, and sometimes we do have to turn, you know, to, to therapy to help. And sometimes people don't want to do that or they're a little bit embarrassed about it. But honestly, it shouldn't be like that. And that's where better help can help as well. Because personally, I know I've I've struggled in the past and I've struggled to kind of like reach out to people and stuff like that. But what I really like about our sponsors, BetterHelp, is you can do it all online. So if you do need a little bit of help or you do need to talk to somebody about that, you know, user manual, if you will, you can do it by text. You can do it by web chat with them, which I think is really, really good. You know, if you're feeling low or you just want to talk to somebody about, you know, things that are going on in life, you might have a new job that's making you feel anxious. You might have recently become a parent you know, and you're struggling with that, or you could just be going through like change in life, changing relationships, or just changing emotions, and you're just feeling a little bit under the weather. Talk to somebody online with BetterHelp can really help with that. Yeah, BetterHelp has matched 3 million people with oh, wow. professionally licensed and vetted therapists, and they're available 100% online. And it's really affordable as well. I think that's one you know, big misconception that therapy is only for the rich and famous. Mm. All you do is you, you fill out a brief questionnaire. They will match you with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can switch to a new one anytime. It couldn't be easier. You've got no, no waiting rooms, no traffic, no endless searching for the right therapist. And of course, um, like all our sponsors, we always try and negotiate a really good deal for you as well. So you can find out more, just have a look at it, and also save 10% on your first month. Head to their website, BetterHelp. That is B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P betterhelp.com slash retro if you want to take advantage of that offer betterhelp.com slash retro and a massive thank you to our friends at BetterHelp for their support of our show Right then next, time to talk about maintaining your retro collection and uh, a nice little interview for our final one of 2022. Nice little cosy chat this one, isn't it, Joe? Yeah, no, it's really sweet this one. Yeah, so uh, Mark Fixes Stuff is our special guest and he'll be on the show next. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time for our favourite part of the show when we welcome on our very special guest. And today we're going to be talking about lots of retro memories, running a YouTube channel, and of course, lots about repairs as well with our guest this week. It's Mark from Mark Fixes Stuff. How are you, mate? I'm very good. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Now, we're talking about when we, we last spoke. I think it would have been our, our Christmas quiz yeah, a year or two back. That's so. right. Um, I, I try not to think about that because um, just such regrets. 
I didn't win, so therefore it's a massive loss for me. <laughs> you you, came you finally getting over it. You defeated me and Ravi. <laughs> That's not really a win, though. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it's nice to have a catch up as well, Mark. I mean, I remember last time we did talk. It was obviously uh, people that watch your channel will be aware about you know the, the circumstances that you had and uh, the house fire, and it does seem now like you're rebuilding your collection and the channel's up and running again. I mean, how's everything been going over the last year or so? Uh, yeah, it's pretty good. Um, I've got all my equipment uh, set up and ready to go. I just finished a video. Uh, it's just a small one where I've made a, a cartridge for the Commodore 64. Um, nice. And yeah, it's going really well. Uh, genuinely no complaints. I'm very, very um, lucky and very happy. So where did your journey with computers start? Uh, we heard you got an Acon Electron. What made you want one? Well, I didn't want an Acon Electron. Um, back when I was uh, a wee nipper, I had a friend who uh, went to my school and he was dead into computer programming and he had a Sinclair Spectrum. And I really wanted a Sinclair Spectrum as well. So my mum went to Curry's and the man who sold her the Acon Electron said it would run Spectrum games. So that's why I got an Acon Electron. I was very pleased that day, you can imagine, as I had <laughs> Sphinx Adventure and Arcadians. But as luck would have it, uh, the friend in question actually really wanted to learn BBC Basic because he was a bit of a swatty nerd and he, he wanted to um, impress the teachers. So mm. for a whole six months, he swapped my Acorn Electron for his uh, 48K rubber key spectrum with a whole sack full of games. So uh, yeah, I couldn't complain. And then I got the Electron back. And to be honest, I, I do love the Electron. It's a very high quality machine. So uh, yeah. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for the Electron because I had one when I was a kid as well. Um, and I've still got it, actually. I, I tell the story on the podcast about how I accidentally reversed a car over it and it, it's still in one piece. So um, <laughs> they were well built. <laughs> definitely give it that. Definitely over-engineered, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> what did you use your machine for then? Cause, I mean, the Electron did have, I remember, you know, the Acorn soft games. Mm. There were some, I remember Snapper, I think, was like a Pac-Man clone yeah. that was on there. So, I mean, it didn't have a massive games library, but I do remember it having, you know, the games that were on there were quite decent. I mean, what? What were you using the machine for? Well, yeah, it was mostly games, to be honest, a, a little bit of typing programming. But, um, you know, there were some decent games. I mean, where um, the Spectrum had its own labels, the Electron had like Superior Software, who did a lot of Electron and BBC stuff. So you've got Repton, for example, which mm. was a Boulder Dash clone. And then you'd have people like Tynesoft that, that bring stuff out. It was the other one. Oh, yeah, Micropower. They, they did yeah. a lot of Electron stuff. So um, Rubble Trouble was uh, a, a frequent favourite in my house until I killed did the you Electron. Have, did you have the expansion bit on the back where it give you the extra ports and RAM and stuff? No, we were far too no. poor, which is why I ended up <laughs> no. with the Electron in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you mentioned there, you know, the Electron died. Our next question was, you got a C64 next, and how did you convince your parents for the upgrade? Was that because the, the Electron died, or is there a story there? Um, well, my um, my stepfather was slight, well, still is a slightly shady character, and he came in with a Commodore sixty four in a black bin liner with a load of games, and said, "I've got this for you. It's a computer thing with buttons on it. Do you want it?" And I went, "Oh yes, please." Um, <laughs> <laughs> and it and it, it came with a Wise terminal that looked like it it comes straight out the local job center, which was absolutely no good to the C64. So obviously someone had uh, acquired a job lot as it were, but yet whoever it was, if they did indeed lose it, then it was my perhaps ill gotten gains. I don't know, but um, 
you know, I'm laying it all bare for you guys, laying it all bare for you. But in there was um, Usagi Yojimbo, which um, is the subject of my last video, which will be going public very soon. Your story there sounds a bit like how uh, Joe got his, um, well, Joe's dad got his Mega Drive from a guy in the pub. Uh, it was the PlayStation, <laughs> that was. That was yeah, bad, yeah, and the, the second controller port didn't work on it. Probably um, the same guy. Probably the same guy. It might have been your stepdad. <laughs> probably was. Yeah. <laughs> So where did your computer journey kind of take you then after the 64? I mean, did you go through like, you know, Atari ST and Mega and did you get into consoles as well? What was kind of the path that you went through in that era? Well, after the C64, a couple of years later, my mum got a, randomly, and I don't know why, um, she bought an Atari ST. I mean, she literally just went out and bought one because she thought she was going to do the home accounts on it. I don't know what she was going to count because we didn't have any money. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, the 520 ST action pack, I think. So I played that for a bit and that was quite good. And then I was um, pretty much of working age. So I ended up working for a company which uh, duplicated floppy disks and they were called um, ProSoft Logistics and they were located in Harlington, which is on the edge of a place called Felton, which Freddie Mercury um, famously came from. And Mm. um, they did all the cover disks for things like the one, all the... um, CompuServe, um, diskettes, AOL, all that sort of stuff. So, um, yeah, from there, my computer journey was basically they had all of these computers, all the 16 bits in the factory for testing on, and I had to run at a place. So, uh, yeah, not another penny was spent for some considerable time. I was going to ask, actually, did you uh, take advantage of the, the disk copying facilities? Uh? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And we could copy absolutely anything. It didn't matter if it was protected or not because um, – much like, have you heard of the grease weasel, which is... No, what's that? So diskettes, um, when they're protected, they're written in a way that a normal drive can't write. When you write a floppy diskette, it has to adhere to a certain set of MFM encoding rules. And you can't make a normal drive do that. So what you need to copy protected stuff is a drive that's just ahead that turns on and off and writes the pulses raw to the disk. Now, the grease weasel is a modern version of that is by uh, Keir Fraser, the guy who um, does the uh, flash floppy firmware that you've probably heard of. Yeah. Um, but back then we had these massive AT&T Unix boxes with all of these huge auto loaders with these dummy drives that literally would write and copy anything. I could put anything in and I never did copy any protected software at all multiple times and I never took any of it home or distributed any of it to my friends. I can hear your nose growing while we talk. <laughs> I'm just looking <laughs> over at my microphone. legal counsel. <laughs> uh, that's brilliant. So were you strictly, you know, a computer guy or, you know, were you into consoles as well? You know, we heard you had a Dreamcast, which had a bit of a sad mm. fate. No, I, I pretty much liked anything. Um, right. Around that time as well, I, I had a friend called Mark there was a lot of us and um, <laughs> he was about two years older than me. So he started working two years before me yeah. and he, he worked in a DIY chain that I don't even know if you'll remember called Texas, Texas Home Care. So yeah. um, they had a mascot called Texas Tom. So we called him Tex and uh, Tex was a gadget junkie. Whenever he got paid, he'd go out and get things. So he, he got mega drives and game gears and got an Amiga and got all sorts of stuff, bought a guitar, never learned to play it. But every time he got something, 
um, because of his guilt of accumulating all these things, what he'd do is he'd go, oh, do you want this one? So um, I had his original 3DO. I had his um, Sega Master System, mm. all those good things. Unfortunately, a lot of those perished in the fire, which is a shame because they came with me for the whole journey. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I was really lucky. I worked in a place that made computer diskettes and my best friend would literally just go out and buy anything he fancied. He had all the bizarre consoles, CDI, you name it, 3DO. And they were expensive machines, the 3DO as well. Oh, I mean, I, I yeah. didn't get my hands on one of those until like about five, six years ago. I think, so back in the day, they were just completely out I of think you paid £500 for the 3DO back oh, then. Gosh. You know, It was a huge amount you, of Because he felt yeah. guilty. Because <laughs> he felt guilty. Because he never played it. Yeah. You know? They gave it to me and I never played it either, but that's not the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did a video recently um, for Halloween and it, I loved watching it. You're kind of talking about kind of, you know, the fate of some of your machines oh, as well. Yeah. I mean, you kind of you kind of touched upon what happened to the Electron, but um, yeah, <laughs> that machine didn't have a, a happy ending in, in many ways, did it? What, what, what kind of happened with that? <laughs> well, there was a, a magazine called Electron User, which um, came out in a day and I think my mother who felt really guilty that she never got me the spectrum when she sort of realized um subscribed me to electron user which was a bit dry you'd have type on um sorry type ins which were you know household databases and you know betting calculators and not stuff that a kid my age wanted to do but some some of the things were good but what they did have was a cheat section at the back so you could enter all your sort of pokes and peaks but to reset the electron and keep the program resident in memory in order to to poke at the memory you'd have to take a paper clip and you'd have to mm. touch two contacts specific two contacts on the expansion connector um and one of them was next to five volts <laughs> um you can imagine what happened i just blew it up by resetting it and touching the wrong pins um <laughs> and then it got sent to someone who sort of fixed it but it only ever worked in black and white. And then I got totally cheesed off. So when I got the uh, the Commodore 64, I ripped the electron to bits, took all of the nice little keys out, and I built a little keypad um, controller with um, an old joystick cable and some wood, which I glued them down on. So I had up, down, left, right, and a fire button. And I plugged that into the Commodore 64. <laughs> it was utterly Heath Robinson. But what a sad fate for an Electron. It was, it was. And I, here's the thing. I could have fixed it today because I know, I know yeah. actually what was wrong with it now. I won't, I won't bore the listeners though. Sorry, I, I do I do tend to go off on a tangent. No, no, we we love it. So, I mean, talking of tangents, what what was the fate of the Dreamcast then? Let's talk about that. Oh, the Dreamcast. So the Dreamcast came out and it was one of the only times because I've been working for quite a while then. I had my own flat and um, yeah, I'd, I'd had a, a Snares and I had a Mega Drive and mm. they were feeling a bit long in the tooth and the Dreamcast came out and I loved it. Um, House of the Dead looked amazing. Mm. So I literally, where did I go? Might have been Electronics Boutique, um, I think. And I bought a Dreamcast. I bought something like six or seven games, um, two light guns, um, and oh, oh my goodness, a keyboard as well. I bought a yeah. keyboard and a mouse. But don't ask me why. They're utterly useless. <laughs> Typing of the dead. Typing of the dead, yeah. As if anyone really wanted to play that when you had a gun. Come on. Um, <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So I had that. And then um, my flat was, um, it was a bit 
ugly. So we decided we were going to strip off the wallpaper and, oh God, I can't even tell the story. I'm starting to cry. Strip off the wallpaper. So I didn't want any of this wet wallpaper going on my newly acquired stuff. So I boxed it all up and then I stuck it inside a black plastic bag to keep it all pristine because I was a bit anal even back then. And then we stripped all the wallpaper off and it all went into black plastic bags and uh, we got ready to paper the flat. So I went off to work at ProSoft and we were doing all our floppy diskettes and I came home and um, my girlfriend had kindly um, picked up all the bags and put them out because the bin man was coming in. She didn't want to miss the bin man. And every single black bag in that flat had gone into the big bin outside the flat and had been taken away and crushed. Oh my god! Yeah, I'm I'm just like dying inside. It's awful. A little bit it's like awful. you know, we always hear these stories about oh yeah, I sold my SNES collection for mm. ten pound and bought a PS One game with it, or my mum threw out all my N sixty four boxes, but not the cartridges, mm. etc. <laughs> or I spent a bitcoin on a pizza. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. But your girlfriend throwing away your brand new Dreamcast with two guns and all those games is just like absolutely gut-wrenching. It it, and I genuinely, I say it in the video, but I genuinely still dream about that Dreamcast. I genuinely <laughs> still dream about it. There's such a feeling the of trauma. loss attached to it. What a first world problem. Come I on. Know, but... I know. Yeah, very true. Was there a bus stop with the, with the missus or? Uh, well, she's my wife now, so uh, yeah. <laughs> You forgave her. Well, you know, Dreamcast has certain advantages, but, you know, a functioning relationship with an actual human also has advantages. So uh, you have to weigh up the pros and cons. So, I mean, you mentioned about, you know, keeping some of your childhood stuff for a while. I mean, did you kind of go through a stage of getting out of it and did you kind of rediscover retro or have you kind of continued all the way through then? And how did that kind of work? Well, I've always been a bit of a hoarder. Um, I'm not neurotypical as so many people in the hobby are not. Mm. So I have a tendency to want to hold on to things. And I think as well, growing up with no money, or growing up without any money, more accurately, kind of makes you want to experience the things that you couldn't when you were younger. So even though things like the snares and everything had passed, I still kept grabbing bits and bobs as I went past because, you know, when you're young, you think you've got unlimited time and you're going to play with all these things and use all these things. And then you're near middle age and the grim footsteps slowly pound towards the grave and you realise, I can't possibly play all these things, but I'm still not getting rid of them. Mm. But yeah, it has been a sort of a lifelong thing. I'll tell you one thing that I do remember. When I was in secondary school, there was this guy called Sidden and he was a really nice fella and he was into um, vintage cars particularly like the Triumph TR7. And I thought that was a bit of a weird obsession, these old cars. He'd get them and um, fix them up. And we were only in secondary school. And he also had this other project. He'd get old computers like ZX Spectrums with rubber keys, and he'd turn them into pencil cases. He'd take out the electronics and throw them away, put hinges on the inside, clasp at the front of the machine and quite literally turn them into pencil cases and sell them. And to me, just seeing those, I could just hear them going, kill me, kill me. (laughs) The hinges saying it. (laughs) You know, and it's back in those times, you could pick up a ZX Spectrum for no money, you know. Mm. So he had acquired about 12 of them. So I went round, I bought them all off him and put them into a box in my loft. 
And there they stayed for years. Now, I didn't do anything with them, but neither did he. And that was the point. You rescued them, though, so they didn't have any more torture. Mm. <laughs> so, you, you know, you've kind of mentioned and touched on, obviously, with the Electron, try to, you know, kind of mod it yourself and stuff like that. And you've got your friend there who's working on, well, I say working on computers, ripping them apart and ripping their guts out. Yeah. How did you get your kind of love for electronic repair then? I've always taken things apart and put them back together mm. from the um, bedside alarm clock when I was about six to the washing machine, to the TV. I just love knowing how things work. I like looking inside things and going, oh, yeah, well, that does that, and that does that, and that does that. And if it's not working, it's probably going to be around there. It's just it's just curiosity, really, and it's not just retro mm. stuff. You know, I'll happily take apart a lawnmower or, a, you know, an LED light. I might not put them back together either. So uh, it's a drive more than a hobby. I'm yeah. just really nosy when it comes to what's inside things. I was kind of the same, but I, I've got a vivid memory of opening up our family's video recorder. Oh, yeah. And then just uh, cogs falling everywhere and then just being like, <laughs> just putting it back together and hoping nobody noticed. And obviously it didn't work after that, but uh, you're actually able to repair stuff, which is definitely a step ahead of me. Well, the fear of um, things like the VCR not working anymore to, is a big motivator on working out how the cogs do go back together. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, why did you decide to start a YouTube channel then, kind of moving forward to, to document this stuff and repairs and everything? Where did that idea come from? Oh, right. Around the time that I started my YouTube channel, I had been working for a company called Epson. They make printers and projectors and everything that you can think of. And I was a technical trainer for Epson. So I'd fly around the world and show people in shops or service um, centers how to repair printers, laser printers, and all that sort of stuff. And I I quite enjoyed that. Um, mm. So when I started my channel, I sort of started it idly because someone else had started one. And I did, I think my first video was me playing Manic Miner really awfully for about three minutes. Um, but people started watching it. So I thought, well, if people are going to watch it, maybe there's something I can do. Maybe I can add some value. So I thought, well, if I'm going to be modding computers or doing bits and bobs on computers if i video them then anyone who's unsure or doesn't really know how to do this will be able to you know follow what i'm doing and that's kind of informed the videos i've made i've tried to make them easy to follow um get the salient points across if anybody wants to do that they could quite legitimately um, follow along with the video or play along at home as i like to say so when you kind of get you know a retro machine what's the first thing you know or even just a machine as you say what's the first thing you kind of look at when you start tearing it apart and when you start taking it apart should i say you know and is there any kind of like repairs that you find are much more common than others oh yeah now the first thing that I, you always have to do when you get a new machine or anything you're going to work on i'll get really boring about this is check the plug mm. particularly on retro machines now these days when you buy um an appliance, it's got a molded plug, and that's great. That stops houses burning down. Not mine, but um, other people's. But if you look inside the plug on something you've picked up from a car boot cell and it's got um, a screwed-on plug, one of the, the old-school ones, you would be horrified because it's been plugged into the wall, taken out, plugged in, taken out, the strain relief's gone, the wires have slipped out, it's arcing. Sometimes they're charred inside. 
you know, so check the plug, tidy it up, make sure it's safe, replace the plug if you have to. It's the first thing you need to do on anything. I never plug anything in unless I've checked inside the plug. Um, then some of the common repairs that you always come across are the 3DO. Um, they have a couple of capacitors which are sat right next to a regulator that gets really, really, really hot. They're only rated for 85 degrees um, centigrade, so they bake and they stop the machine turning on. I've seen dozens of those. The Amiga with its leaky capacitors, uh, the CD32 with its leaky capacitors, the A600 Amiga with its leaky capacitors, the A1200 Amiga with its leaky capacitors, and the Game Gear with its leaky capacitors. Um, <laughs> and, and people often go, oh, capacitors, capacitors, capacitors. People think you change the capacitors, everything springs into life. Well, the fact is there was a capacitor plague. There are a lot of machines out there with bad caps in. And recapping doesn't fix anything, but there are certain machines that you shouldn't even use without recapping. Uh, Game Gear is definitely one. Um, it smells bad. It smells like the back alley behind a fishmonger's uh, nice. if you leave it running too long. <laughs> you know, actually, you talk about, you know, caps and stuff as well. And Amigas, I know the amount of Amigas I've seen that have been damaged due to those uh, clock batteries leaking as well. I mean, mm. they can make a real mess, can't they? The Varta of Doom. Yeah. Yeah. Seen a few of those. Um, they are a particular pain in the bottom because they leak and they go all over the board, get inside the sockets and get all over everything. Yeah, not nice. Um, you know, talking to capacitors, have you kind of got a method for removing them? I know there's uh, different schools of thought. Some people, you know, use their air guns, some people twist them off, which always makes me cringe a bit <laughs> when I see it on video. But what's kind of your method? And have you got any advice on, on doing it? Removing capacitors, that's a bit of a contentious subject. So... I never twist them because if you twist them, you're likely to remove the pads, particularly on surface mount capacitors. I do something that I've shown in my most hated video. And what I do is I put my finger on top of the surface mount capacitor. I get a really sharp pair of snips and I cut gently through the capacitor. And then I take the top off and then you can lift the capacitor off the two stumps that are still soldered like removing hoops from a game of hoopla and then you can see underneath how much corrosion there is on the pads um, one of the problems i find with uh, capacitors of leaked particularly in an amiga is if you try and heat them up you can't get good contact so you end up overheating the board and it delaminates the pads and it stinks so i do i must admit cut them off i never twist them though i think twisting a capacitor off is absolute lunacy um and people who say well you know i do it all the time and i've never lifted any pads well yeah it's the same as saying well my nan smoked 500 fags a day and she <laughs> she lived till she was 199 you know I'm, yeah. you know, anecdotes are not evidence so what tools would you say are essential to repairs and kind of rolling two into one here if people want to get into learning repairs themselves are there any good resources you'd recommend or is it just like yourself just get stuck in all right so good tools hammer chisel flamethrower brilliant um <laughs> napalm for the really tricky joints um no seriously um if you're going to start off, what you really need is a good soldering iron. And I will always recommend getting one that is temperature. I'll always recommend getting one that's temperature controlled rather mm. than um, adjustable. And there is a difference. So if you get a cheaper adjustable temperature iron, when you turn a dial, what it does, it turns it to, say, 320 degrees centigrade. And then when you put it on the joint, all the heat goes into the joint 
and your iron drops down to maybe 280 degrees centigrade and all of your solder starts to get all claggy because the heat has been wicked away from the iron. If mm. you get a temperature controlled iron, you set it to 320 degrees centigrade, you put your iron on it, as soon as the temperature drops, it then puts more power into the iron to bring it up to 320 degrees centigrade. And that is the thing that catches most people out. They don't realize that although your iron is hot, it dips as soon as you put it on the joint. So decent temperature-controlled soldering iron, some flux, some decent solder, and then just practice. It really is just practice. I'd say as well, because I mean, I, I'm definitely not skilled in repairs. I mean, I've done a few, like I, I fixed my 3DO, you know, with the through-hole capacitors, yeah. I replaced them. Um, and I know, Joe, you've got a load of machines often. I know you're, you're a bit nervous about trying that kind of thing yourself, aren't you, Joe? Yeah. And, um, yeah I think sometimes would, it, would you say it's just kind of maybe practice on something that's not valuable first mm. and teach yourself slowly? Is, is that kind of the advice? Yeah. I mean, one of the bits of advice I see quite a lot is, oh, you know, practice on some old computer motherboards. But that doesn't actually work because wave soldering techniques in modern motherboards are far different to what you'd be working on in vintage machines. So mm. it's actually much more difficult to desolder those components. And that's why a lot of people give up. They go, oh, I've got an old you know, motherboard and a computer that died two years ago, and I'm trying to take bits off, but nothing's shifting. And that's because it's a massive ground plane. It was all soldered together by this huge, humongous machine. So you really do kind of need to get into the lower end to practice, you know, maybe composite modding a spectrum or something like that, because that old solder is all leaded and nice and poisonous. It makes your brain die last, but it does give you a good experience in soldering and desoldering. Yeah, there's a certain smell about leaded solder that yeah. you'll definitely recognise, isn't there? Yeah. There is. <laughs> it always makes me nostalgic, yeah. So, I mean, do you go in for stuff like um, retro-brighting and kind of restoring the look of machines? And, you know, what's kind of your method there? Well... <sighs> Mm, see, I'm torn on this because you've got the one camp that says retain the patina of the machine. It tells the story of the machine. It shows the history. And you've got the other camp who go, no, everything's got to be bone white. Everything's got to be as if it's just come out of the packet. But there's a, a reason that things go yellow. And it's because a chemical um, typically called bromine, which is inside the plastic, rises to the top of the plastic and causes the surface to yellow. And bromine is a fire retardant. It's there to stop your house burning down. Not mine, obviously. But mm -hmm. um, even if you bleach the top, there's more bromine in the plastic. So it will come back up. And really, retro brighting is, is a bleaching process. So mm. you're also taking away the sort of the natural um, conditioners of the top layer of the plastic. So it will make it brittle. And it's it's a temporary thing. So I lean towards not retro-brighting things these days. I've got a couple of videos doing things like tank mice and stuff like that. But to be honest, it's not a process I enjoy doing. And I'm not really sure of the long-term value of it anyway compared to the amount of damage that it can actually do to the machine. So it's a, it's a no for me. I had a Dreamcast that was really yellow and it'd been away in a drawer for a couple of years and then I took it out and it was, you know, the most yellow machine I've ever seen. Yep. But I tried that, um, we had that really, you know, warm week back in the summer when it hit like 40 degrees here in the UK. Mm. And I just put it out in my garden on the table and actually the, the yellowing reversed quite a lot, just leaving it in the sun for a day. Yeah, I put, which is something I put I an Amiga on the shed roof and it did the same thing um, mm. because I had an Amiga shell with no Amiga and I thought this is really, really uneven 
uh, sort of uneven and yellow. I wonder what happens if I put it on the, the shed roof. And I left it there for two weeks, and it went so, so whiter than an Amiga would have come out originally. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I thought I'd keep an eye on that, but it was not to be, unfortunately. But um, the peroxide does help, but maybe, yeah. I think that's called air brighting. I think people call it air brighting. Yeah, sun brighting, I've heard it called sun as brighting, well. Sun brighting, yeah. Well, it works. If you think about it, when you go to places like the Middle East or Turkey, everything's beige. <laughs> it's been <laughs> battered by the sun, you know, 18 yeah. hours a day. <laughs> So is there any machines you hate working on? So, you know, we've, I mean, other than the Game Gear, maybe. <laughs> I was going to say Game Gear. <laughs> um, Why is a Game Gear such a nightmare? I always hear that. Because uh, they smell. They've all leaked and it's really fiddly to to get the caps off. And it just stinks, really. It just absolutely stinks. There's there's no way to get to the caps other than desoldering them through the leakage, and it's it's horrible. Um, uh, that's why I've got literally a box right next to me with nine in them. Wow. Nine, well, nine uh, Game Gears sat there in various states of disrepair, um, and I've actually got a Game Gear video planned, so I really do need to do one of them. The um, the machine that I really hate doing anything on, though, is the Nintendo DS, the original Nintendo DS, because both my girls, when they were growing up, had um, DSs, and you know what it's like with kids. They just smash everything to bits. Mm. So the amount of screens I had to replace and touch screens and all that sort of stuff, and just folding up those cables and getting it through their hinges. I do not know how people put those together in the factory. I wouldn't be surprised if it's done by a robot. It's absolutely so fiddly so yeah game gears and uh yeah nintendo ds's is there anything you find really easy to work on oh 3dos 3dos are yeah you know they're really easy spectrums are really easy uh, especially with the tools you can get these days where you just plug a diagnostic card in the back and it even tells you which memory chip or multiplexer is falling over it's uh it's an absolute gift time saver i can rock it through maybe four or five broken spectrums in an afternoon which is uh, mm. quite handy. Yeah, because it's. Uh, I remember you know, talk about the 3DO and those caps as well. It's weird because I've actually seen on my 3DO there is um, space on the motherboard for a fan, and there's even like a cutout on the side of the case, but no fan was installed from the factory. So maybe that could have helped it out if, if it was it was designed for one by the looks of it. Well, there were um, fans in the early models in the early. Um yeah, Japanese the models. FZ1s, yeah. Yeah, in the early FZ1s, there were metal fans, and I actually have one with a fan in it here somewhere. Somewhere. <laughs> the <laughs> mystical somewhere. Yeah. So, so that's uh, worth fitting then, you think, to, to help it out a bit? I don't know if that'd help, really, because it's mm. at the opposite end of the machine as to where the um, the capacitors are. What would have really helped would have been instead of installing 85 degrees centigrade capacitors into the uh, machine, if they'd actually installed 105s instead, which probably would have um, seen the issue off for a considerable amount of time. Well, you do um, mods on your channel as well. I mean, what are some of the, the coolest mods you've you've done yourself with systems or, or ones that you've seen that you're really impressed with? IPS screens, I think, all day long. I mean, the technology for screens these days... Uh, far outstrips things like the original Lynx. Um, I mean, I loved putting the uh, new Benven screen into the Lynx. Uh, that made that machine actually playable rather than, you know, just playing through a veil of your tears as your eyes collapse and stop working. 
And also, I think one of the ones I really enjoyed was putting the IPS screen into the new case with the rechargeable battery um, for the Game Gear original, which I did in the video, which was uh, really nice. And I left that, um, no, not Game Gear, Game Boy, sorry, Game Boy original, DMG01. And I left that lying around with a multi-cart. And a couple of weeks later, I found out that um, my eldest daughter had completed Pokemon on it. Or Pokemon, depending on where you're from. <laughs> nice. You know, talking to mods as well, one video that I thought was really interesting that he did a while back was um, the, the Lumafix mod. Now, I actually got um, a Commodore 128 a couple of years ago. And when I turned that on, I saw, you know, it had what I think is called jail bars, That's isn't it? Right, you know, yeah. you get these kind of, you have these vertical bars all the way down the screen. And th- this mod that you did actually sorts that out. I mean, explain a bit about that. I mean, why is it needed? Why is, why does that problem exist on the, the Commodore 64 and the 128? Well, um, gel bars is something that you only really see on modern displays. And it's the way that the screen is generated in rows and it's how it changes from one um, block of luminance to the next. So what you're seeing really is how the screen has been um, drawn. So what the LumaFix really does is it makes a compromise between sharpness and um, luminance and chrominance. So you fiddle those and you sacrifice a bit of sharpness to kind of hide the lines, if that makes sense, kind of like blurring a pixelated photo to take the harshness away. So it's not perfect by any means, but um, I didn't design the circuit, so I can say it's not perfect. It'd be perfect if I designed it, obviously. <laughs> of course. <laughs> Like I could. <laughs> so um, do you find most retro machines are built well um, or they're usually quite cheap, you know, not built to last? Um, the ones that are built the best are the Amstrad machines, I think. I mean, they're absolutely bulletproof. The ones that aren't built very well, the Tiger Game.com, that's put together with good wishes and sellotape. It's absolutely <laughs> horrible. Um, and most machines, you know, they're, they're of a period where... Um, the technology that was being manufactured, it, it was a pioneering time. And, you know, all the processes we have today for putting together electronics didn't exist. So um, it was before miniaturization and all that sort of stuff. So uh, I, when I open a machine, I see it's a bit sort of Heath Robinson, like something like an Auric. You open it up and it's really a weird design. I, I just think, you know, that's kind of a celebration of how things came to be um, nobody really knew what they were doing and in the end sort of the financial aspect of the machine and the the popularity of the machine sort of won out i mean we we all know that the best things don't always survive um history for example betamax was a better system than vhs but vhs won you know hd dvd yeah. was better than blu-ray but blu-ray won but I, I just love looking at it because I can see its place in history and its place in time and its place in that period of um, design. So, yeah, poorly designed, I don't know. Um, maybe sometimes a bit naive, maybe sometimes a bit adventurous, um, but always interesting. And I think you, you made a good point there about you know the, the cost of them as well and getting them onto market at, at an affordable price. I mean, I often see it on 
um, Facebook groups and stuff when people might get hold of a machine and uh, they'll, they'll put an image up and they'll be like, uh, someone's worked on this before. There's a there's a bodge wire in here, but <laughs> often they were in from the factory just to make it work, weren't they? Because yeah. you know, they didn't want to lose money on them. So yeah, absolutely. And, and these machines, I mean, no one thought that when they were designing them, we'd still be using them 30, 40 years later as well, I imagine. So oh, that wouldn't no. have factored into it. Oh, no, absolutely not. And some of the people who were in the industry then, when, um, shall we say, um, retro enthusiasts hunt them down in no way stalking them um and say hey we're still using your spec and they look at them like well are you mental you know yeah, why <laughs> i didn't think it was that good back then and i made it sort of thing um yeah so yeah there there is that aspect but you know is it a weird hobby that's the question what do you think oh, i think it definitely attracts um a certain type of person, I think, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Definitely, I think it's um, yeah. I mean, but I, I do think it's grown in popularity, though. But then I imagine most people that probably kind of wanted to dip their toe into retro would probably go down the the mini console route rather than you know the extents that us guys go to of getting like you yeah. know thirty year old machines and spending a ridiculous amount of money on modifying them and upgrading them and that kind of thing. Yeah, it's mad. Um, I mean, you'll often see things like what was it the um, the C sixty four mini. That was released a couple of years ago, wasn't it? And um, there was outcry in the retro gaming groups because it didn't have a cartridge slot or a working keyboard or you couldn't plug a disk drive into it. And I was Mm. just like, it's not for you. It's not for you. It's a Christmas gift for dad, uncle Dave, auntie June, someone who had it back in the day. They're going to open it up, plug it in a couple of hours, then it's going in the cupboard under the stairs. It's not for you. And it doesn't make your original machine disappear. So calm down, dear. Calm down. <laughs> well it's said. It's just a mini. <laughs> I love that. Well said. Um, so obviously you spoke about, you know, your daughters back in the day. Well, I say mm. back in the day when they were growing up, you know, kind of snapping DSs in half and damaging <laughs> yeah. screens and stuff like that. Um, what do you think of like screen mods for handhelds? Obviously the GBA is a really popular one. Are they worth doing? I absolutely love them. Um, Mm. It's always worth um, looking around and finding the best one because there are a few different designs for um, things like the GBA. But, um, you know, I mean, if you're ripping apart a mint GBA to do it, I probably would have a few issues with that because I don't like modding things for modding things' sake. But, for example, the, um, the Game Boy original that I did, that was quite literally just a system board. And I took that and I put it into a new case with a new screen and built it into a new screen. So I felt like that was a win. Um, but lots of the DMG01s, the original Game Boys, have got screen right now. So, you know, it's it's fair game to put a new screen in because it keeps it going. And it is so much better. It is incredible how much better it is. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, screen mods, um, particularly for things like the um, Game Gear, which is really common they've all suffered from leaky caps and the screen was blooming awful to begin with Mm. then you know it breathes new life into the system um so yeah i'm a big fan and you know big shout out to ben ven as well he does some really good work in this field and he often delivers the product for possibly 60 percent of the price of his competitors so yeah big fan of his stuff and he cares what he's doing as well so 
Yeah, I think that's definitely one thing that's come on a long way in the last, like, you know, 30 years, screen technology. And, you know, because I've got a, an Atari Lynx in the screen on mm. it, you know, it wasn't great to begin with, but to view it, you've got to kind of hold it about 90 degrees and look at it now. Yeah. Um, so I'm definitely looking at, you know, doing a, maybe one of the McWill screen mods or something on that at some point. But well, yeah, I, I just think I've, I've seen them in there and they look amazing. Yeah, I mean, I did the Ben Ven mod on the uh, Lynx. Um, yeah. Sorry, keep going on about Ben. Um, but okay. um, that was absolutely amazing. And it's a more economical choice as well. And it's more available, I think. Right. I think Atari Game is selling them at the moment. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if he's fulfilling them himself. But um, And that's drop-in. You, you've only got to solder one wire if you want to enable screen brightness or scan lines, I can't really remember now, but you can just literally open it up, just plug it into the socket and close it up again. No soldering, okay. baby. That's what we all want. Even I could do that, I think, by the sounds of it. So, Oh, it is yeah, very easy. Good. Very, very easy. Yeah. Well, I saw recently on your channel as well, I mean, you managed to resurrect some things from the ashes. I mean, what, what kind of success stories have you had so far with that? Well, behind the scenes, I've thrown quite a lot of stuff away. Um, yeah. But um, things like cartridges, for example, um, I've got some cartridges that have been, should we say, licked by the flames. They're all gnarled up and stinky. And then what a lot of people don't understand is when you have a house fire, it's not the fire that does the most damage. It's the fireman coming in and hosing everything down. And then you can't go in there for a week. So everything just gets covered with slime and mold. Um, mm. All of the labels you know, they mold off and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I've managed to resurrect a couple of carts. Um, got some footage that I'm going to be putting into a, a video about 3D printing some shells and resurrecting um, them with newly printed labels. Um, and they're not even, you know, rare games. It's just feels like I'm snatching something back that way. Mm. So, yeah, a lot of Coleco stuff, uh, some in television stuff. Um, I've got some melted consoles where the boards look all right, but I don't know what I'm going to do with those. It's just hoarding again. It's just my um, my hoarding brain kicking I'd, in. I'd be exactly the same. It's, it's like trying to win something back from the fire, I guess. Mm. Mm. So is there any dream machines you'd like to add to your current collection? Any any holy grails that you're after at the moment? Well, it was, it was a Tatum Einstein, but now I've got two of them sat here like buses wow. i'm about to do part two on my tatung einstein fix and upgrade uh video mm. just waiting for some 3d printed parts to come from pcb way because they kindly offered to do it for me in resin i can 3d print my stuff here but if they're going to do it for me and send it to me then i'd be silly not to say hell yes um mm. but for me the one that has eluded me is the sam coupe so, yeah, I really want a Sam Coupe. The end. Sam Coupe, please, Father Christmas, if you're listening. <laughs> I've been a good boy. Honest. I didn't copy that floppy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they are very cool machines, though, aren't they? I've had a little play with one at the um, the Retro Computing Museum in Leicester, and it's just such a unique, you know, even the look of it and everything. I mean, it looks like it'd be an ergonomic nightmare to use, but actually mm. it is quite weirdly comfortable. It's, yeah. um, it's yeah, a, definitely a strange it, bit of history. It's an utterly stupid machine that shouldn't exist. You know, it mm. was the wrong thing at the wrong time, pitched to the wrong market by the wrong people which is why there aren't many of them around. I'll, I want one, though. I want one. You know, I got a Vectrex. That was one of my uh, unicorns. That's actually in um, 
Neil's museum, um, the RMC exhibition uh, with mm. a multi-cart in it because otherwise it would just sit here and not get used and it, it would just sit here in my Vectrex shrine and that's not right. It won't, <laughs> the wants sh- to be the shrine's still there, but the Vectrex is just missing. <laughs> the shrine's still there, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's really weird about the Sam Coupe as well because we were on our, our patrons hangout a couple of months ago and someone mentioned that the, you know, the, the little mascot that they had, Sammy was called the little robot, yeah. that actually now um, a company, I don't know if you've seen these on Amazon, they're selling colouring books featuring him as the character. Really? So, yeah, and you can get them for about £4 on Amazon. So I went on and bought one. The next day, my wife's like, why have you ordered a kid's colouring book? Because you're a kid. Um, (laughs) (laughs) A big kid at heart. But, yeah, it's weird. Like, that that trademark has kind of been used again now, bizarrely. So um, Very odd. Very, very odd. The story of the Sam Coupe continues to get weirder. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you, you mentioned about working with Neil as well, because I know you, you, you helped a lot with them um, setting up his museum too. I mean, have you got any more projects with Neil coming up? Um, at the moment, Neil is uh, working hard with um, Arcade Archive um, with Alex, who's uh, setting up all the arcade machines. So probably won't be doing anything for the remainder of this year. Um, maybe something in January, February. I've got enough to be mm-hmm. getting on here, to be honest, um, without going up there and stuffing myself full of sandwiches and gummy bears, which is uh, <laughs> what I do. It's just an excuse to go to Greg's, to be honest. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Can't go wrong with that. <laughs> and what about on your channel, Ed? What, what can we expect? Is there anything, anything you're kind of working on that's coming out soon? Well, I've just got to the point where I can actually film again, which is nice. Um, I've set up my streaming kit. I'm going to be streaming soon. Um, I'm actually going to be streaming tomorrow, but tomorrow will be after this comes out. And yeah, I've got the Tatung Einstein thing coming on. I've got um, a little Dreamcast, a very yellow Dreamcast, which is going to be recased. And um, we're going to put in an ODE, an optical drive emulator. Um, Game Gear, that's going to be recased because it's covered with smoke. And yeah, various other bits and bobs. I'm going to be putting a new IPS screen in the Game Gear as well the multi-cart, all the usual sort of fun and games and shenanigans. I'm also going to be starting a really, really, really short series called Does It Work? Because I've got a pile of things here and I don't know if they work. So I'm quite quite literally going to look at the camera and go, here is a Commodore 64. Does it work? Let us find out. (laughs) Plug it in. No, this one does not work. Thank you for watching. <laughs> like the Does It Blend guy from a few years ago. Yeah. Like that, yeah. Does It Blend. You can't get a blender big enough for a Commodore 64, can you? I don't think. No, yeah. I wouldn't do, try that. have to do it in bits. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, it's uh, always a pleasure to talk to you, mate. And I, I'm so glad that, you know, things are on the up again. You're building your collection up. The channel's still going strong. So thank you so much for coming on. And of course, I'll link up your channel in the show notes. Lovely. Everyone should go check it out. Thank you very so. much for the invite. Yeah, thanks again, Mark. All the best, mate. Thank you.